Well, good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 19 for our study today. And uh, we, we're going to finish up 19 and jump into 20 and 21. We've got a little ways to go, but we're going to make it, and it's going to be wonderful. Uh, this particular passage, the end of 19, starting in verse 30, is uh, a pretty uh, startling passage. So let's take a look at this and see where the Lord leads us in our study today. Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. By way of reminder, Lot has just been rescued from Sodom. In verse 30 we read, Now Lot went up out of Zoor and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, this morning I'd like to tell you about a dear friend of mine that I met while I was pastoring in Budapest, Hungary. His name's Blake. And uh, Blake was born and raised in southern Michigan, the son of a pastor and the brother of a pastor. He rejected God's call in his life and went his own way, becoming, in his words, the black sheep of the family. He enlisted in the military where he found himself involved in Operation Just Cause. He was part of the first wave of U.S. forces with the invasion of Panama back in 1989 to overthrow General Manuel Noriega. Blake speaks of the incredible surge of adrenaline that overtakes you on the battlefield when you really don't even have time to be afraid as all your military training kicks in because you are just there to perform your duty. In the years to come, Blake went to college and grad school and became a history and philosophy buff. He would use his knowledge of world affairs and history to become an international tour guide. As an international tour guide, he lived in Budapest, Hungary, so he could be centrally located with the tour company he worked for. 19 years later, Blake found himself in harm's way again as he led a tour group to Mumbai, India. As God would have it, he was staying in the great five-star Taj Hotel when it was attacked by terrorists. In November 2008, 10 members of Lakshir-e-Taiba 
an Islamic militant organization based in Pakistan, carried out a series of 12 coordinated shooting and bombing attacks lasting four days across Mumbai. There's some pictures of it up on the screen by way of those headlines. The attacks, which drew widespread global condemnation, began on Wednesday, November 26th, and lasted until Saturday, November 29th, 2008. 164 people were killed, and at least 308 were wounded. Perhaps you even heard over the weekend in Mogadishu, Somalia, over 20 were killed at a hotel. So this stuff still goes on. Two of the hotels, the Taj Mahal Palace and Tower and the Oberoi Trident, were among the four locations targeted in Mumbai. Six explosions were reported at the Taj Hotel, one in the lobby, two in the elevators, three in the restaurant, and one at the Oberoi Trident. At the Taj, firefighters rescued 200 hostages from windows using ladders during the first night. The first floor of the Taj Hotel was completely gutted. One female eyewitness described things this way. My eyes were burning, stinging. The smoke was really coming through by now. Shattered glass everywhere. Explosions going off one after the other. Nonstop gunfire. Water from the broken pipe flooding the floor. The ceiling falling in. And the fire was getting closer. I remember just talking to God, praying, then getting really angry and thinking, no, God, this is not it for me. I'm not going to die hiding under a coffee table in the Taj Hotel, so deal with it, God, fix it. For my friend Blake, he found himself in the upper floors of the hotel, holed up in a broom closet with three other desperate people for three days. Waiting for the situation to resolve, all kinds of emotions overtook my friend. Fear, anger, frustration, rage, courage, doubt. Four days later, he was led to safety by God's grace, and the whole ordeal, ordeal was over. God had seen him through another incredibly scary situation. But even with all that, going through combat, being held hostage in a hotel for four days, nothing shook Blake's world more than what happened to him just a few years ago when he finally married to what he thought was the woman of his dreams and when in less than a year's time all of his dreams were shattered when his new Hungarian wife said, it's over. I went out of this marriage and everything began to unravel for Blake. I first met Blake as he came to our church in Budapest, Hungary after he had read several articles that I had written on marriage for the only English language newspaper in the city. When I met him, Blake was a broken man whose life was spiraling out of control. He had married an unbeliever and now everything was hitting the fan. He was terrified about his future. So we started coming to church and we started meeting together to work through things. Beloved, many of us find ourselves gripped with fear way too often. Some fear comes from what is going on around us, and some fear comes from what is taking place within us. Fear can seem paralyzing at times and can consume an enormous amount of our thoughts and energy. <clears throat> Far too often, we end up being afraid of the world around us, fearing what's going to happen next, or fearing the people around us who we struggle to trust. But we don't need to fear our circumstances, our future, or other people. As we'll see today, rather we need to fear God and God alone with a reverential awe. His love and compassion for us will dispel our fears. We can know with certainty that he will hear our cries, lift us up, and open our eyes to see him for all that he is to us. We've gone back to the beginning 
in our series in the book of Genesis. Today, fear not is the main idea. From the beginning, God created an awesome world for all of us to enjoy. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, the first couple, that's Adam and Eve, brought our world under the domain of sin through their unrighteous rebellion against God. At that time, God inaugurated his plan of redemption through promising a seed, a child. A child was to come to Adam and Eve who would one day destroy evil once and for all. And it was said that the serpent would bruise the coming redeemer, this seed, this child on the heel, but that this promised seed would crush the serpent's head. As time passed, the evil one unleashed an ongoing attack against humanity, attempting over and over again to stop the coming seed that would overthrow him. But humanity was not without hope as God continued to work in and through his people to bring about redemption for a remnant people who would be his people and to whom he would be their God. Eventually, the sea line came to Abraham, and in chapter 12 of Genesis, God promised that our promised redeemer would come through Abraham and Sarah. And God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that his descendants would be given a land to call their own where they would live in an ongoing relationship of blessing. The only problem is the couple was barren. And now Abram is approaching 100 years old and Sarah is 90 and they still haven't had the promised child. Finally, eight chapters later in our text today, the promised child arrives, but not without one more risky situation that Abraham brings on himself. We also have the aftermath of Lot's rebellion to unpack, as I just read a moment ago. Overall, the main thematic element from this passage is the subject of fear. As I was reading this, studying for this message, over and over again, this idea of fear, being afraid, kept popping up in the text, unlike anything else we've read in all of Genesis. This morning, we'll see three spiritual truths from God's Word to help us overcome our fear. But before we study, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, all of us are racked with fear from time to time, and oftentimes we make decisions based on those fears. God, help us as we study today. Help us to hear from your Word that we might learn what it is really to trust you in the midst of our fear and ultimately to have a fear of you, a reverential offer of all that you are. So Lord, be our guide as we study. Open your word to us that we might hear your truth. And Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive it by the power of your spirit. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name this morning. Amen. You have your sermon notes outlined. Here's the first truth of three we're going to look at today. Beloved, here it is. We don't need to fear. We just don't. We don't need to fear. What don't we need to fear? Well, first of all, we don't need to fear our circumstances. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. And what does it say? For he was afraid to live in Zoar. I'd like to remind you, it was him, it was Lot who said, I'd rather go to Zoar, and now he goes there and he's afraid. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Previously, Lot requested to live in Zoar in verses 20 and 22, and now he's afraid to live there. We're not sure what his rationale is here. We don't understand why he's afraid, what's bugging him. Uh, but here's what we do know. Fear often brings paranoia, and with it, isolation. Lot was afraid of his circumstances, so he became paranoid of his surroundings, so he isolates himself. 
You've been there, you've done that, you're afraid, so you withdraw, you pull back. Sin and rebellion always brings with it more fear in our lives. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sinned against God, found themselves hiding from God in the fear of his presence. And now Lot, in his rebellion, is holed up in a cave, paranoid and alone. He has basically lost everything, including his wife. All that is left of his dreams are his two daughters and apparently his nice stash of alcohol. Remember, he was the one who negotiated with God to go to Zoar, and now he laments it. And it seems that he's afraid that the people of Zoar may, may be out to get him or something. Had he been walking with God and listening to his voice, perhaps he and his entire household would have been spared. We need to trust God right where we are. We don't have to be afraid of the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Up on the screen, that's a very famous painting by Edvard Munch. The name of the painting is Scream, literally the scream. Maybe you felt like this. You come to a place of just being terrified and you just want to scream. There's a great book that I've encountered over the years in ministry. It's called Be Not Afraid by David Avaska. I've handed this out by way of dozens to people who've been wrestling with fear. It's a daily devotional. I have several copies down in my office. If you need this book as a daily study of God's word about how to overcome fear, I encourage you to talk to me after the service and I'll hook you up with one of these. It's a great study. It's a great tool. David Ivasky, of course, went through his own fears as he came to actually write this book. But Isaiah says this in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not. This is what God says to all of us in this room. Fear not. I don't know what you're dealing with. God says, fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Are you hearing that today? You belong to him. When you pass through the waters, Isaiah continues, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Sometimes it feels like, man, I'm, I'm going under. No, he's got you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It might get a little warm, right? It might heat up a bit, but he's got you. Do not fear. Fear not, he says. Further on in that passage, God goes on to say, the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I have redeemed you, and I love you. It's beautiful. Beloved, we don't need to fear our circumstances. I don't know what you're going through right now, Maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's finances. I, I don't know. We don't need to be afraid. You don't have to isolate yourself. You don't have to pull back. You don't have to become paranoid. Secondly, we don't need to fear our future. Isn't that where a lot of fears come from? We're afraid of what's going to happen next. Why? Because we don't know what's going to happen next. Notice what happens in verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. And so we read it a moment ago with what they choose to do. Let's get dad drunk, let's sleep with them and we'll have our own kids. We'll do it that way. So you go, well, what's, the, what's going on here? Well, they're afraid of something, aren't they? They're afraid of the future. They're afraid they won't find husbands to them, for themselves. Fear often brings poor judgment about the future. 
Lot's daughters were afraid of the future, so they took matters into their own hands with a horrible decision. Now, here's the irony. Their father had offered these two daughters to the men of Sodom previously in this chapter, and now they offer themselves to their father. What a diabolical twist. Beloved, we fear the future, and we are often tempted to sort things out ourselves. You ever been afraid of, oh, man, what's going to happen? I remember years ago, when I was a state farm insurance agent, um, I got this super nasty letter from one of my clients because he had a son who had been wrestling with alcohol and in Wisconsin, State Farm Insurance was requiring an SR-22 filing because the guy had had an OWI, operating while intoxicated. And for us to continue insurance, we're gonna have to get a special signature from mom and dad for them to, to sign to say that, you know, they're not going to let their son drive their vehicles anymore. Why? Because the son, obviously, if the state thinks the son's dangerous, as an insurance company, we think he's dangerous too. It's not fair to the rest of our policyholders. You know, he's driving around with uh, whatever the, the, uh, the amount of the limits for the uh, liability is, $300,000, half a million dollars in his back pocket. This kid's dangerous to all of our policyholders. So we're going to exclude him. And I get this nasty letter, you are a horrible agent and your company stinks and he just lit me up. And so I got that in the mail, you know, like at 9.30 in the morning and I've got it. I know that later in the day, I got to call this guy. I got to follow up with him go, oh man, I'm really sorry, you're having a problem, you know? I'm like, oh dear. And so all day I'm, oh no, I got to call this guy. I'm afraid. I don't want, he's going to yell at me some more. He already yelled at me in writing. Now he's going to yell at me on the, over the phone. This is not going to be good. I don't like this. Maybe I'll just blow it off. I won't call him. No, it's a responsible thing to call him. So, okay, I got to call him. So I know he doesn't get home from work around 5, 5.30. So name's Jim. So I, I, I still know the guy. I know who it is. So around 5, 5.30, roll around, and, you know, and I pick up the phone. I set it down to pick up the phone. Okay, dial the number. Hello? Hey, hey, Jim, I got your letter. And this is what he said. Oh, yeah, you know, never mind that. Just throw that away. I, 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 it's all good. I'm like, I worried all day. I was afraid all day to call you. You know, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking it like, I wasted a whole day being afraid of something I didn't need to be afraid about. By the way, there's a lot of stuff like that. That we get, we're, we're afraid about, we're concerned about things. And quite frankly, what we do is we create these sandcastles, right? These sandcastles that don't exist in reality. And, we, and, and, you know, we take our moving truck, beep, beep, beep. We move in, we unpack, and we start living in this sandcastle that's not real or true, of course, the first wave comes along, smashes it all down. It's like, why was I so upset about this? Beloved, we don't need to be afraid of our circumstances. We don't need to fear our future. Now, what's interesting with this, you notice there's some names in verse 38, actually 37 and 38. The firstborn who came from this situation bore a son and called his name Moab. Mo, the root there is for a preposition in Hebrew for from, ab. Ab, father, from the father. Well, the child was precisely from the father, wasn't he? And he's the, he was the father of the Moabites to this day. 
The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Ben is son of Ami, that's the people. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So here we have these two people groups that now develop out of, these, out of this situation with Lot and his daughters. And so we kind of ask the question, so why is this account even in the Bible? Since we really don't hear more about Lot than the rest of the Bible. What is incredibly remarkable is that God uses this particular rebellion to bring about his glory anyway. That's what he does. Later in the book of Ruth, we find that Ruth is a Moabitess who marries Boaz, an Israelite. They have a son, Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, who is ultimately in the promised seed line of our Savior Jesus Christ. You mean God uses horrible situation to bring about his Redeemer? Yes, because that's what God can do. He can take something totally heinous and horrible and bring awesomeness out of it. We don't need to fear our future or our circumstances. But thirdly here, we don't need to fear other people. Some of us have a fear of man. We have a fear of others, what they're going to say, what they're going to do to us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20 now. And you haven't seen this. We haven't read this yet. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Hadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Okay, here we go again. We've done this before. Remember with Pharaoh, and now he's going to do it with Abimelech. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Oops. By the way, we're still waiting for the child to show up, and now we're giving the wife away again? Okay, this is a bad idea. We often fear what others may say what others may do or what others may think. Fear brings lapses in our own integrity where we want to lie and cover up to, to make sure we ensure what we have coming to us as we see it. Remember, Abraham was afraid of Abimelech, so he lied. In verse 11, Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. He's afraid. See how fear plays into this? Deuteronomy 1.17 says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. In the actual Hebrew here, the way you translate this, not be intimidated by anyone, you will not be in terror in the face of any man. And quite frankly, we live our lives and we're afraid of everybody else. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? What are they thinking? We really should be concerned about what God has to say. The judgment is God's, and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, God says, and I will hear it. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is what? Safe. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, that is fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul, the apostle, adds, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We should be more concerned about what God has to say about things than not what everybody else is saying. Beloved, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear our circumstances. We don't need to fear the future. We don't need to fear other people. We just don't. But secondly, as was just intimated by some of these passages we just looked, looked at, we need to fear God. 
Now, in terms of the word fear here in Hebrew, the range of meaning can be dread, horror, terror, all the way to having a reverential awe or an appropriate respect for who God is. We need to fear God. Why? Because God will always have his way. Will we just trust him in that? Notice what happens in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's, she is a man's wife. See, God can sort things out. He's going to have his way. <clears throat> now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Am I going to be under your judgment here? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he's my brother? In other words, both of them are in cahoots on this thing. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, Abimelech, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. This is how awesome God is. He can protect even that. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech, wow, rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much what? Afraid. This is appropriate fear, right? Very much afraid, afraid of God in terms of what God's going to do. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought, me, brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did? What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. They'll kill me because of my wife. What's Abraham saying? I was afraid you're going to destroy me. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So now he's passing the buck, right? It's blame shifting. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Just basically get out of here. And to Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Here we see Abraham underestimating the power of God to touch a pagan king's heart. It turns out that there was a fear of God in this place after all. We often jump to conclusions about our circumstances instead of waiting on God for him to make things clear to us. But the irony here is that it seems that this pagan, godless king seems to have more fear of God than even Abraham does. This pagan king seems to have more integrity than Abraham does. God will always have his way. But not only that, God will always keep his promises if we'll just trust him. And now we jump into chapter 21, verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. You understand how close this was to being really messed up with this Abimelech guy. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him. From Sarah bore him Isaac, Yitzhak in Hebrew. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Beloved, God will always keep his promises. He had promised this several chaps, chapters ago, uh, eight long years ago prior. Beloved, we need to continue to obey God in the midst of his promises. Finally, the child arrives calling him laughter. Why? Because Sarah had mocked, Sarah had laughed. What promises has God made you that you're holding on to? They're all in his word. Are you trusting him or are you kind of laughing at him? Beloved, we need to celebrate God's promises in our lives, knowing full well that he will always keep his promises. He will always have his way. And thirdly here, God will always provide his comfort. Look what happens, verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Of course, she's going to take that personally, isn't she? Remember, Hagar had had a son with Abraham in an earlier context. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, Ishmael, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She becomes very jealous, takes matters in her own hands, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. In other words, Abraham said, no, 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 I, I like Hagar and I like the boy. Let's, let's keep him here. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever, says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is amazing. God says, look, I do have a plan here, but you're going to have to trust me in it. I want you to go ahead and send her out. With it. That's what Sarah says. Don't worry, verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. This thing was displeasing to Abraham. Sometimes there are things, circumstances that come by our way and, and we, it seems displeasing to us. We seem grieved over it, but we don't need to be distressed. He is, of course, the God of all comfort. He brings us comfort. God will always provide his comfort in the midst of distressing situations. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. How so? Who comforts us in all our affliction. I don't know what you're going through, but he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. In other words, God comforts us so that we now can be used to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. God is so willing to overcome those things that distress you. As Abraham was distressed over the situation and God brings comfort, that's what he does. God will always provide his comfort if we would only trust him in the midst of our circumstances. 
Now lastly, and don't miss this, now the narrative turns to Hagar. What becomes of her now? Thirdly here, God's love and compassion will always dispel our fear. You can imagine how Hagar, who's now being sent out, it wasn't her fault, this is some other guy's idea, and now she's caught up in it, and now she's, this is the second time she's now been directed to go, go away. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away, and she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For he said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God's love and compassion will always dispel our fear. She's in a horrible predicament. He, that is God, he is the one who hears our cries no matter what. Not only does God hear our cries, don't miss this, parents. He also hears the cries of our children. Oh, don't miss that. She's weeping. The boy is crying out, and God hears it all. Secondly here, as his love and compassion dispels our fear, he will always lift us up. In verse 18, what does it say? Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Scripture says this, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves. You think Peter knows about this? Remember Peter, Mr. Denier guy, right? I think Peter understands this. Mr. Arrogant, oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. As a matter of fact, he swears. I don't know. I don't know this Jesus. And now he teaches us, you know, maybe we, would you just humble yourself? Because that's what I needed to do. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Pete understands this. Remember, Pete gets out of the boat and he starts sinking because he's looking at the circumstances when he should have kept his eyes on Christ. He's sinking, and who pulls him out? Jesus lifts him up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Watch this, don't miss this. Casting all your anxieties on him. Does anybody have any anxieties in here? You have some anxieties? Take them all and just throw them at him. Awesome. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Here's Hagar crying out, it's over. And God intervenes. No, it's not over. We come to that. We draw conclusions without nearly enough data. Oh, it's over. It's all over. No, it's not. I don't have to be afraid. Fear not. He hears our cries. He'll lift us up. Lastly here, he'll open our eyes. He'll help you to see what's really, really true. Then God opened her eyes, verse 19, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. 
Maybe we need to keep looking. Sometimes we just want to give up, and God says, no, keep looking. I've got something. Trust me. Look up. He'll open our eyes as he lifts us up, as he hears our cries. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Sometimes it seems that there's no place to turn, and then in the last minute, God makes all the difference. He brings us to that place where we have nowhere to turn but to him, to him alone. John writes in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. Here's what I'm convinced of. If we really understood how much we are loved by him, if we understood how much he loves you and how powerful he is, shouldn't we come to a place of resting in him instead of fearing? I mentioned my friend Blake at the beginning of the service. He was married to an unbelieving wife who abandoned him and divorced him and took up with another man. But Blake was determined to keep seeking after God. About seven years ago, with his international travel connections, Blake put our mission team up for, in a five-star hotel in Budapest for a few days. It's probably the nicest hotel I've ever stayed in in my life. He took care of us. Incredible generosity and kindness out of appreciation for what God was doing in his life. And over the years, Blake has become a very dear friend to our family. And five years later, as Blake has continued to follow after God, God brought another woman into his life. And he and his new bride left the international touring scene and took all their resources and purchased a motel on Route 66 in Arizona. Here's a picture of him right there. Here's Blake. Where they are now managing the hotel, enjoying life to the fullest by the sheer grace of God. At one point, this is a guy who was in a hotel that was being shot up. This is a guy that was on the, the beaches trying to overthrow Manuel Noriega. And now God has blessed him in amazing ways. Beloved, here's what's true. We don't need to fear our circumstances or our future or other people. Rather, we need to fear God and God alone with a reverential awe. His love and compassion for us will dispel our fears and we can know with certainty that he will always, always, always hear our cries he will always lift us up, and he will always open our eyes to see him for all that he is for us and to us. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that you're always there. We can always turn to you no matter what. And Lord, with the dear ones who are here, I know that there are fears in the room, and you know what those fears are. You know them full well. And Lord, it's my prayer even right now that each one of us would take just a moment and name what we're afraid of. In the quietness of this moment, just name in your mind, what's the fear? What are you afraid of? What's the biggest thing, the biggest concern you have? Would you take that fear in your mind and lay that at his feet? Would you give that over to him even right now? Lord, I want you to take this. I'm going to cast this on you. Knowing full well that you care for me.
give it to him right now. And now, Lord, instead of being afraid of whatever that was, Lord, may we have a proper reverential awe, a proper fear of who you are, that you are God, that we might turn to you, that we might trust you. Lord, there are others around us, even in this room, who are afraid. May we be a people that seek others out with what they're afraid of and help them with their fears as we help point people to Christ. Lord, we love how you dealt with Peter, how you loved on him, how you restored him even after his failures as you lifted him up, as he lifted up his eyes and he saw your face. Lord, may that be true for all of us in this room, that we'd be lifted up and we would look to you, that we'd see your face more than anything else. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your outrageous goodness. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, before you go, we have one last bit of business. We have several new members I'd like to introduce to you real quick. And at uh, this time, I'd like to invite Dustin and Jessica Stevens to come on up here on the platform. And Josiah and Abby Smith, if you two would come up too. Can you stand over here? <laughs> so these four have gone through the membership process where they came to a discovery class and uh, were interviewed by elders. And uh, the elders heard their testimonies of how they all put their faith and trust in Christ. And uh, so we have uh, membership certificates for you guys. Here's one for you, sir. Congratulations. And for you, Jessica. That's Dustin. This is Jessica. And this is for you, Abby. There you go. Congratulations. And for you, Josiah. Thank Congratulations. You. And we have some parting gifts. Again, the, the purpose of our church, the purpose of Oakwood Bible Church is to make disciples and make disciples. And these four are saying that they want to partner with us to do that as members of our, of our community, which is awesome. And, um, and so we're, in the, we're basically in the life-saving business of going out, of touching hearts and lives, bringing people to Christ. And so I've got these awesome packs of lifesavers for them. So congratulations there, and congratulations there. And let's thank the Lord for these four. I'm going to invite them to go out in the foyer and on your way out the door, be sure and greet them. Again, make sure you know everybody. Dustin, Jessica, Abby, Josiah. There they are. You know their names. Say hi. Thanks for being a part of Oakwood. And so you guys go. And while they're leaving, you guys stand and let's close our service. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for a wonderful day of ministry. Thank you for the power of your word. Lord, it's one thing for us to hear these things. But Lord, help us to not just hear, but to walk in these things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these uh, four individuals, these two couples who are wanting to partner with our church, which is just awesome. Lord, we ask that you continue to grow us, not only numerically, but to grow us more deeply spiritually as a community, as we 
seek to touch hearts and lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you. Give us a great week as we go out in the world to touch hearts and lives and to care for people, trusting you along the way. We just want to give you all the praise today. In Jesus' wonderful and awesome name we pray, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you so much for coming.